Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill stadium deals have been even worse and can be up to a quarter million dollars of spending per job, absolute worst bang for your buck possible. The actual economic impact is completely terrible. Economists have been saying this for 25 years and more, you know, that if you want to create uh, jobs in your city, you're better off taking the money up in a helicopter over your city and throwing it out the window. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are going to speak about Seattle Seahawks Pro Bowler Michael Bennett and the police brutality incident that took place in Las Vegas after the Floyd Mayweather-Conor McGregor fight. We are also going to speak about Hurricane Harvey and the legacy of stadium construction in Houston and how that added to the carnage. For that section of the show, we're going to speak to Neil DeMoss, who is one of the foremost experts on the issue of publicly funded stadiums, the author of the book, Field of Schemes. We also have Kaepernick Watch, the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, and much more. But first, this is very personal to me. Let's get to Michael Bennett and what happened in Las Vegas. Okay, so look, listeners to the show know this, that I'm working with Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett on a book called How to Make White People Uncomfortable. The aim of Michael Bennett in the book is to make people uncomfortable by telling difficult truths that a lot of people are just trying not to hear from a football player whose job in the minds of many fans is to just entertain. Michael believes, as he writes, that if we are too comfortable, we're not growing. He writes, when you grow as a child, it's so intense. Your body is knocking your own teeth out of your mouth so stronger, better teeth can grow in. When your bones are growing when you're 12, 13 years old, it can be so uncomfortable you can't sleep at night. If we feel uncomfortable, then we're doing something right. That discomfort is just a period of transition. Trust me, you will feel blessed if you can see it through and make it to the other side. But running through the book is another idea as well. 
It's the idea that Michael Bennett is made to feel uncomfortable by virtue of being a big black man living in the United States. And the assumptions that people draw about him is something that he has to live with. If he's not comfortable, he doesn't think anybody else should be either. That is why Michael Bennett, with what I believe is incredible bravery, given the current political climate, has just come forward with a statement on Wednesday about what happened to him after the Mayweather-McGregor fight two Saturdays ago in Las Vegas. Posted on Instagram, here is what he wrote. Dear world, on Saturday, August 26th, 2017, I was in Las Vegas to attend the Mayweather-McGregor fight on my day off. After the fight, while heading back to my hotel, several hundred people heard what sounded like gunshots. Like many people in the area, I ran away from the sound looking for safety. Las Vegas police officers singled me out and pointed their guns at me for doing nothing more than simply being a black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. A police officer ordered me to get on the ground. I wasn't doing nothing, man. You didn't ask me a question. I was here with my friends. They told us to get out. Everybody ran. Did you ask me a question, sir? As I lay on the ground, complying with his commands to not move, he placed his gun near my head and warned me that if I moved, he would, quote, blow my fucking head off, end quote. Terrified and confused by what was taking place, a second officer came over and forcefully jammed his knee into my back, making it difficult for me to breathe. Then they cinched the handcuffs on my wrist so tight that my fingers went numb. The officer's excessive use of force was unbearable. I felt helpless as I lay there on the ground, handcuffed, facing the real-life threat of being killed. All I could think of was, I'm going to die for no other reason than I am black and my skin color is somehow a threat. My life flashed before my eyes as I thought of my girls. Would I ever play with them again, or watch them have kids, or be able to kiss my wife again and tell her I love her? I kept asking the officers, what did I do? and reminding them that I had rights they were duty-bound to respect. The officers ignored my pleas and instead told me to shut up, and then took me to the back of a nearby police car, where I sat for what felt like an eternity, until they apparently realized I was not a thug, common criminal, or ordinary black man, but Michael Bennett, a famous professional football player. After confirming my identity, I was ultimately released without any legitimate justification for the officer's abusive conduct. I've always held a strong conviction that protesting or standing up for justice is just simply the right thing to do. The fact is, unequivocally, without question why, before every game, I sit during the national anthem. Because equality doesn't live in this country, no matter how much money you make, what job title you have, or how much you give, when you are seen as a N-word, which he says out, you will be treated that way. The system failed me. I can only imagine what Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Charlena Lyles felt. I have retained Oakland civil rights attorney John Burns to investigate and will explore all my legal options, including filing a civil rights lawsuit for the violation of my constitutional rights. Sincerely, Michael Bennett. Let me tell you why this was such an exceptionally brave thing to do. One, it's always courageous to tell the truth when you are bullied or beaten. You hold that inside and it can kill you. You tell the truth and shame the devil. Two, this was brave because we know what kind of reaction going public will provoke in the police. Police officers should be apologizing to Michael Bennett and going out of their way to say, hey, not all police officers are like that. Instead, they will interpret this as an attack on all of them. 
That to me is the sickest part of police culture. Not every police officer brutalizes people, but the overwhelming number of police officers will protect those who do. It's called the blue line of silence for a reason. It's just like the temper tantrum Cleveland police are currently throwing because a dozen Browns players took a knee during the anthem. They are protesting the Browns anthem protest by having an anthem protest of their own and not carrying the flag onto the field. The logic of this aside, this is a police department that has been singled out by federal authorities for brutality. The department that has the blood of 12-year-old Tamir Rice on its hands. But they are the ones who are offended. Bennett's public stance is also brave because the NFL season starts in just 24 hours, and this is the last thing, I promise you, that NFL owners and Commissioner Roger Goodell want to be discussed. But guess what? It happened. And lastly, it's brave because I can tell you many stories of athletes who get roughed up by police officers. Sometimes it's because police officers see big, black, wealthy men and assume that they are criminals. Sometimes it's because police officers treat black men as if they are less than human, and athletes with their ego and confidence refuse to back down in the face of that escalating confrontation. And sometimes it's because police officers are sports fans who are frustrated athletes themselves and choose to flex against the person they wanted to be. This is something that took an uncommon amount of courage to say. When I communicated with Michael on that Saturday night, it almost seemed like he had PTSD from the experience. I didn't know if he would come forward or not. The statement is the act of somebody who knows what they're doing and isn't afraid of the fight. He needs to know that he's not alone. One thing is perfectly clear. No one should ever ask Michael Bennett why he's protesting during the anthem ever again. Before we get to the author of Field of Schemes, Neil DeMoss, I want to read a little bit about what happened in Houston and the nexus between stadium funding and the horrors of Hurricane Harvey. Look, taxpayer-subsidized stadiums have long become a substitute for anything resembling urban policy in the 21st century. We know this. And now as roads, bridges, and humanitarian shelters decay, they stand exposed as neoliberal Trojan horses that take public dollars and magically transform them into private profit for billionaire sports owners. They are a scam, a con, and a grift. Let's talk about Joel Osteen for a second, the money changer who runs his own Houston temple. He has been the subject of withering criticism after refusing to open a 16,000-seat Lakewood megachurch to those seeking shelter from Hurricane Harvey. Now, the doors are open, but it took several days of people wondering why this proponent of the prosperity gospel, which is basically means God loves you if you're rich, was pulling up the drawbridge on his place of worship. Now, Osteen's church was once a hoops-hallowed ground called The Summit, home of the Houston Rockets and the site of the magic made by Akeem Olajuwon in his 94 and 95 teams that won back-to-back NBA titles. In 1995, flush with this success, Rockets owner Les Alexander demanded a new sports arena from the city. And these negotiations eventually resulted in the Toyota Center, which opened in 2003, even though the city voted down this plan in a referendum. In the end, the people of Houston paid $182 million, even though Toyota was paying $100 million in naming rights, all of which went to Les Alexander. It's a grift. And the grift was just beginning. Texas taxpayers have continually paid for upgrades in the subsequent years for the Toyota Center. In 2013, the public even paid for a new $8 million scoreboard to help prepare Houston for the NBA All-Star Game. 
But it's not just sports owners who took and took and took. It's the people who hang on them like barnacles on a boat. And that's where Joel Osteen comes in. He leads the largest congregation in the country and lives in a mansion that Donald Trump would find gaudy. He also moved his church to the publicly owned summit in 2005 for a bargain basement lease and then purchased it outright in 2010. Now, how much did Osteen pay for this historic, usable, but now useless arena? $7.5 million. For the cost of a backup power forward, Osteen had himself a megachurch. The summit, no longer the house that Hakeem built, would now be home to a Sunday television program and a preacher who gets paid in souls by the pound. Now, this rockets Osteen connection is tragically just a microcosm in Houston of what tax-funded stadium priorities have produced. The Houston Texans, the NFL team, were handed almost $300 million in public financing for their stadium and even took an extra $50 million in 2017 for Super Bowl renovations. Then there's the Houston Astros, who play in Minute Maid Park, built in 2000 for $250 million in public funds. The original name of Minute Maid Park, tragically and appropriately, was Enron Field. Now, in the Texans, Rockets, and Astros, we have three owners, Bob McNair, Les Alexander, and Drayton McLean, who sold the Astros in 2011 for $680 million, who are the welfare kings of Houston. What's so enraging is that McNair and McLean, in particular, are galling individuals, both major bankrollers of GOP politicians who say that all public spending is bad. Unless, of course, it's for these monuments to corporate welfare in the guise of sports. Now the entire city is paying the price for their hypocrisy. As for Les Alexander, he just announced that he is selling the Rockets for about $2 billion. Keep in mind that Les Alexander bought this team in 1993 for $85 million. There is no way Alexander would be able to command that asking price without the public subsidies and new arenas underwritten by the city of Houston. Remember that when you hear stories of these three men writing personal checks to support Harvey Relief. They are just handing us the crumbs off their table. As the waters rise and climate change reaches our shores, it is unconscionable to keep spending money on sports arenas so billionaires can plunder and vultures like Joel Osteen can stay on the grift. The priorities need to change if we're going to survive a period of climate crisis. And it's a small step to take to start asking billionaires to pay for their own damn stadiums. And now on the line, I have somebody who knows more about the stadium issue than anybody in the United States. He's the perfect person to talk to about why we keep spending billions of dollars on these monuments to corporate greed. The author of Field of Schemes, Neil DeMoss. All right, so I'm just going to jump right in and we'll get to this and speak as long as you want with your answers. Be fulsome. That's the great thing about podcasts. Wait, fulsome is not even the right word. Uh, be loquacious. <laughs> I'll be loquacious and fulsome. Unfulsome. And obsequious and clairvoyant. Um, yes, go ahead. Yes. And precocious, clearly. <laughs> We're recording this, right? All right, this is all going in. All right. Excellent. So, <laughs> so Neil, for, for 25 years at least, this has been the way cities have operated. Huge priorities, public funds for stadiums. How did it become this way? Like, let's go back before we move forward. Sure. I mean, really the origins of the modern um, stadium funding uh, scheme 
start probably in the 80s. Before that, you had stadiums that were certainly built publicly, right? I mean, you had all of those, you know, ones that they called, the, you know, the multi-purpose stadiums they used to call the concrete donuts, um, you know, the big round things that were all built in the 60s. And those were mostly built by governments, but it was a different model because you would build it and then you would have, you know, a football team and a baseball team play there and the teams would pay rent and eventually it would pay the money back. So, for example, um, as late as 82, when was built in Minneapolis, um, that was, I think, $90 million. It was pretty cheap by modern standards, um, and it was all public money. But the Twins and the Vikings signed deals where you know they would give a part of parking revenue and some ad revenue and other stuff like that. And eventually, uh, Minneapolis made, wound up making all that money back and paying off the bonds. What started happening in the 80s was uh, really as a result of some of the federal government cutbacks under Reagan of of money to municipalities, you started seeing more and more cities thinking, hey, if we want to get some, uh, some businesses in our city, maybe we should just pay them, right? We want to get a, a uh, you know, car factory or a computer chip plant or something. We can just give them some tax money, and then they'll locate here, and that'll be a good deal. Um, it wound up creating, you know, what some economists have called the, uh, you know, economic war between the states, <laughs> where you just have, you know, cities like Minneapolis and St. Paul, say, bribing companies to jump back and forth across the Mississippi River. Um, but eventually, team owners started to take notice and say, hey, cities are willing to give money to, you know, uh, Saturn or whoever. We're going to, you know, maybe we should get try and get some of that. Um, and that... And how do you compare the economic benefit of, say, giving money to Saturn to open a factory versus giving money to open a stadium? Um, it's pretty awful either way. I mean, you know, some of those those uh, you know car and computer chip plant uh, deals have wound up looking absolutely terrible in terms of bang for your buck. You know, where it's like, you know, winds up being a hundred thousand dollars in spending for every single job created. That said stadium deals have been even worse and can be up to a quarter million dollars of spending per job creating. It's the absolute worst bang for your buck possible. Um, you know, even just like job training programs and things like that tend to get you like one job created per, per I don't know, $10,000, $30,000 spent. So, um, you know, the the actual economic impact is completely terrible. And economists have been saying this for 25 years and more, you know, that if you want to create uh, jobs in your city, you're better off taking the money up in a helicopter over your city and throwing it out the window, as, you know, University of Chicago economist Alan Sanderson likes to say. So, um, but that doesn't stop it, you know. I mean, the and as, you know, we've covered in our book and now on the website, um, you know, there's a series of arguments that team owners make and sort of cycle through to say, okay, 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 sure, these economists say it's not going to work out, but really it will, and here's the reasons why. Well, let me ask you something. Like, based on what you see in terms of the polling of taxpayers, uh, the fact that in the 90s you saw these stadiums often get pushed through with referendums and you should tell me if you disagree with me when I say this it seems like the referendum is less of a tactic that's used right now to build new stadiums do you think some of these ideas that they put forward are starting to be a little emperor new clothes-ish or do you think they still have currency you know first started researching this Joanna Kagan and I back in 
94, 95, um, we expected that just to find that, you know, cities were building stadiums and, you know, putting public money into them sort of at the behest of sports fans who were, you know, clamoring for them. And that was, you know, and when we started to look around, we found that it wasn't the case at all, that in most circumstances, the polling for should you put uh, uh, public money into building a sports facility is terrible, even among sports fans, you know, who are, you know, half of whom are going to be saying, man, you know, that team sucks. <laughs> I'm not going to want to give my, my tax money. Um, so I think that it's always been kind of an undercurrent, right, that people are uh, understand that there has to be a good reason and are skeptical of, you know, just taking several hundred million dollars and handing it to the local local sports billionaire um, in order to, to build a private stadium. And that's why oftentimes it takes a really long time for these things to get built and they have to come back and, you know, if a referendum doesn't work, then they try something else like the Seattle Mariners did, you know, as far back as 95, they had a referendum they got their heads handed to them, and a couple weeks later, they went to the state legislature and said, yeah, so, so the people voted the wrong way. Can you give us the money anyway? And they got it. Um, and that sort of stuff still continues to go on. So I, I think that there's a little bit, you know, some progress in terms of public discontent is starting to filter down into some people who are, you know, on city councils or, uh, you know, mayors of, of cities. So we're starting to see some progress there. But, you know, at the like you saw in D.C., uh, Adrian Fenty won his mayoral race by being the guy who was against the building of National Stadium. Yep. Um, although, I, if I remember right, he still supported. Was it the Was it the DC United the Stadium? Soccer the soccer. Yeah, it was absurd. Right. No, right. it was an absurd thing where it was good. For, and, and I don't know if this is the right analysis of it, but just from someone who lives in the DC area, it seemed like it's a great issue for voters to oppose like this kind of corporate welfare. You get elected mayor, but then once you're elected mayor, you're subject to the pressures of the very kinds of and and, and the donation possibilities of the very kind of people who want to build stadiums and then all of a sudden you become a born again supporter of what it could mean for the city. Sure, it's the yeah, same thing as any issue where there's, you know, major lobbying power, right? You know, you campaign saying that you're going to crack down on real estate interests and then you get in, you know, become mayor and suddenly, you know, there are the people who are going to give you money for your reelection campaign, the people who are, you know, are all surrounding you and it's like, "Oh, maybe those ideas don't sound so bad after all." Um, but there are a few, you know, I mean, the, Tom Tate in Anaheim has been really good about holding uh, the our Angels owner, Artie Moreno's feet to the fire in terms of saying, I'm not going to give you any money or freelance. You give me a good reason to. Um, Nahid Nenshi up in Calgary has been doing the same thing with the Calgary Flames. Um, Libby Schaff in Oakland, um, you know, did not give in to the Raiders, uh, you know, to Mark Davis's demands for a new stadium. Um, um, I remember Betsy Hodges in Minneapolis uh, let the soccer team go across the river to St. Paul rather than give them a, a property tax break. So, you know, there, again, there are, there are some examples. Um, you know, I think Seattle is the Seattle City Council is doing a pretty job of, uh, you know, trying to trying to at least even some tax kickbacks. It won't be the kind of scale that, you know, uh, team owners got in that city previously. So I, I think there is some progress. But again, you know, this is such so integral to the business model right now in is that um, you know the way that you make money isn't by selling tickets so much as by a um, holding up cable TV 
customers for the absolute maximum possible price, and B, um, getting tax breaks, you know, and and uh, and subsidies from from cities and states, um, and you know, it there may be pushback, and there's been pushback all along, but it's just way too lucrative for anybody to give it up just yet. Now we get to what may be, and you should tell me if you disagree, because I really do think you're so much smarter than I am on these issues. So, so you, you know what I wrote for the nation. So I wonder if climate change, climate catastrophe could end up being a tipping point on these questions when you see a city like Houston, when we all see a city like Houston, and you see these three publicly funded stadiums, and then a fourth one that for only $7.5 million was turned into a mega church or bought by Joel Osteen, and then he doesn't even let people in at first uh, when the floods hit. Um, does this have the capacity to be a tipping point to, to look at what's so destructive and dangerous to devote money here when we have these pressing climate issues. I mean, I always hope that any, you know, crisis can be a tipping point for these things. And, and you know, when you look historically, uh, you know, the moments that tend to uh, uh, actually create lasting change are always the ones that kind of surprise you, right? <laughs> Where it's been kind of bubbling under the surface for 20, 30 years, and then suddenly, you know, it reaches, it reaches some sort of critical mass. So maybe, you know, I mean, maybe there will be enough outrage um, over the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, all this money is going to, you know, um, build stadiums that at best are, can be used maybe as emergency shelters rather than at building emergency shelters in the first place or shoring up dams or whatever else. Um, but you know, it's unfortunately a long, slow process. So you don't necessarily see the potential that when these climate change issues occur, when there's disaster, when there's flooding, uh, I, I hear what you're saying about, you don't think that will put this issue of the stadium under more of a microscope, but do you think that maybe just maybe we could develop a culture where people start using slogans like, schools not stadiums or dams not stadiums or climate justice not stadiums where the stadium itself can become a symbol and a stand-in for social justice activists to be able to say a stadium is a priority for the rich not for the sports fans and certainly not for people who aren't sports fans yeah and i think that's where some of the potential comes in right is not that people are going to turn around after um harvey and you know, potentially Irma, and say, um, you know, look at this disaster, and you know, we need to uh, to be rethinking our spending priorities because that's not really the way that uh, you know the political world works. But um, yeah, yeah, there might be some um, change in the culture that you get the same way that you know um, Occupy Wall Street, right? Didn't immediately change you know our political system or inequality, but some of the images of you know the 99% versus the 1% have really sort of stuck in the political consciousness of America. So I think that you know there's there's a potential for things to start going that way, and I am hopeful um, that maybe within my lifetime we might see you know um, the uh, the uh, you know stadium scam start to unravel. Um, but you know, I have predicted before that uh, the tide was starting to turn, and that maybe someday soon I might be able to stop reporting on this and write about something else instead. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's going to be a a long slog, and uh, you know, uh, 
many many stones to build an arch on this one. Let me let me get to this question as well because I'm just curious as somebody who um, yeah sure go ahead deals with this. I found that when I started working on this issue and debating people on this issue, and I don't even want to tell you how many years ago I've been doing this, but it's been a lot of years. Yeah. When I started, it was very easy for me to find somebody, or I should say for a a radio producer to find somebody to debate me on the air. And they would have their stadium talking points. I would have my anti-stadium talking points, and we would go at it. I have found that now they cannot find people who are willing to go on the air to argue the pro-stadium position. And it ends up being just an interview with me where the host throws out what some of the typical talking points are, like, well, what about jobs, you know? And then I just get to shoot those down. Because I feel like the economic data has become so overwhelming now that we have 20, 30 years of actual recent evidence that can show us the answer. So the other side is just kind of like, fuck it. You know, we, we don't have an argument. So we're not going to make an argument. We're just going to count on our lobbying and work behind the scenes and, and you know, really go by the mantra of Rudolph Giuliani of, well, we can't just have referendums because then people won't vote for them. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I think that's that, that's certainly, you know, over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, the, the accumulation of evidence has become a little bit more, a little bit harder to uh, ignore, right? Um, and it's, you know, whereas when I started researching this, probably most people believed the the claims of, oh, well, you know, sure, it'll be create an economic boon. You know, now plenty of people have read, you know, my book and dozens of other books and, you know, Deadspin's coverage and everything, you know, to, that said that's, uh, that, you know, all that is nonsense. Um, unfortunately, they have other arguments to fall back on, right? You know, they say, oh, well, but think of the intangible benefits of, uh, you know, revitalization of your city and, you know, think about uh, what will happen if the team leaves and, you know, the, the, all the different things from the stadium playbook. Um, so I think that there has been an evolution of the way that uh, the stadium scam happens, but it has not really started to hit team owners in the pocketbook just yet. I guess it is potentially maybe possible that uh, sometime in the coming years or decade or two, um, you know, uh, team owners will start to run out of arguments and and start to, you know, um, be backed into a corner. Um, Like I said, I think that would be wonderful. I am not holding my breath just because I think that there is so much money at stake and so much money that can be thrown around um, for uh, for pro stadium campaigns that it you know is something that's not going to end anytime soon. I remember way back when we were first researching the first edition of the books. This must have been you know mid late nineties. Um, uh, Joanna and I went to a big convention of stadium builders and Jay Cross who had worked for the Miami Heat and later worked for the Jets and you know it was kind of you know a, a stadium czar for a bunch of different teams was there and he was on a panel about referendums and another guy on the panel had said you know we don't like doing referendums because uh, you know you could lose <laughs> the people could vote any way they want and Jay Cross got up there and he said you know we kind of look at it differently we look at it as that it's a political campaign and if you win the referendum it gives you legitimacy and 
as a political campaign, all you really have to do is spend enough money and you can win. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the big problems is that we're still in a situation where, you know, it doesn't happen everywhere and there's plenty of referendums where teams lose. Um, but there are plenty that, you know, they win. I mean, you know, the Texas Rangers are getting a new stadium 20 years after the first one. And that went through a referendum because, you know, they uh, were able to just throw lots of money against it and, uh, and, and you know, and one running away. Do you think if that process was starting right now, what's happened with Hurricane Harvey might shape that debate somewhat? Know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think it would be very hard to get um, um, stadium funding passed in Houston right this second, probably. But on the other hand, you know, you've you've seen, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the New York City certainly uh, certainly built a bunch of stadiums not long after 9-11. And, you know, when Hurricane it, Sandy hit. It's, it's yeah. not like having a disaster. And and yeah, Sandy, it's not it's not like you it's not like you you know having a disaster. I mean that that's the thing, right? Is team owners can make two di- completely opposite arguments. If the city is doing well, they say, well, you know, there's all this money, we should spend it on a stadium. If the city is doing poorly, you say, well, the city is doing terrible. What you need is a stadium. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, you know, they've got the, the the rhetoric at hand for either of those. So I I don't know. I mean, I you know, I think we're going to have to see. Unfortunately, I think that you know the climate is going to produce a some perfect case studies for this right you know where you know maybe 20 years ago or even you know after katrina you might think well you know there aren't enough uh, major hurricane disasters um for us really to see what the impact is on on the stadium deals um if we start getting major hurricanes every couple of years mm-hmm. that might change wow neil demoss thank you so much for joining us on the edge of sports podcast always happy to provide my cheery perspective <laughs> I always think it's deceptively cheery. Uh, like you said on Facebook, you're a man with a lot of caraway seeds because you're very wry. Um, but let me ask you this. Great line, by the way. But let me ask you this. What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of music does Neil listen to when he needs to chill out? Because that will be your outro music as you leave. Oh, the Mekons. I love the Mekons. I am a huge, huge fan of the Mekons. I appear on the, uh, the? On the, the their most recent album because they used a uh, they recorded it in front of a feral choir of seventy five Mekon loving ticket holders who were led in singing along on choruses and backing vocals and things like that by uh, a a Mekon collaborator. So, can we play Club Mekon? You can totally play Club Mekon. That's the song that got me into the Mekons. I, I I bought that record. I listened to the. I heard the first song, Memphis Egypt, and I was like, "This is really good." And then Sally came on singing Club Mekon, and I was like, "I have found the music I'm going to listen to the rest of my life." Neil Demas, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. My pleasure. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from the Nation magazine. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, we are living in a time when real news has never been more important and investigative journalism has never been more important. 
please support and subscribe to The Nation magazine. It's the oldest weekly in the United States, dating back to 1865, and it's never been more vital than in 2017. Subscribe at www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. Just Stand Up! Believe it or not, Stand Up Award this week goes to Cam Newton, quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. I didn't expect it either. But Cam Newton came forward and said, I think it's unfair that Colin Kaepernick is not on our roster. There's no question about it. Is he good enough? Absolutely. Is he good enough to start? Absolutely. And then Cam came in with, uh, but our main focus is trying to beat the 49ers. It's okay, but Cam is getting there. And when you couple that with what Aaron Rodgers said recently, saying that it's ignorant to think that Colin Kaepernick is not on a roster because of his play as opposed to his politics, you're seeing more and more players speaking out against what is such an obvious case of collusion against the NFL quarterback just because he dared to speak out against racism. Sit your ass down award. Sit your ass down. A little obscure, but it matters to me. It goes to Calgary's Northwest Warriors Hockey Association. My God, this hockey association needs to take all the seats. Their logo is a profile of an indigenous person smiling, wearing war paint. A seven-year-old girl of indigenous ancestry who was on the team, who made the team. Remember, hockey is hella serious in Canada. She made the team and said, I am not going to wear that. We need to switch this mascot. I'm an indigenous person. I don't wear mascots. Their response to her was, fine. Then you're no longer on the team. This is what her mother said. She said, a shirt is supposed to represent unity between people. My daughter is all about culture and bringing people together with arts and sports. So being told to wear this or sit down, you have got to be kidding me, right? This is terrible. Are you kidding me? I am so down with this family. I am so down with a seven-year-old girl who knows how to stand her ground, stand up for herself, stand up against racism. And the lesson that they are giving her is sit down and be quiet. Well, you know what? They might think this is a small story. To me, this is a big story. I'm going to be writing about this in the days ahead. Calgary's Northwest Warriors Hockey Association, you are now on watch. talk about the Kaepernick watch we just got a little bit on this we've talked about Colin Kaepernick a lot this week but I would like to call this week in Colin Kaepernick land bring on the bullshit that's the bullshit coming out from anonymous NFL general managers who are trying to defuse people like Aaron Rodgers and Cam Newton by just coming out there with hey we don't think Colin Kaepernick is good enough to play. I mean, they're saying this even though, of course, there are quarterbacks on rosters who have been retired, who are known for things like the butt fumble. I mean, who are just god-awful quarterbacks. And here's Colin Kaepernick, 16 touchdowns, four picks last year, can't find a job. What's so ridiculous is that these general managers, they want to talk anonymously. They won't stand by their words. They have no courage. They're cowards. 
And so who do they call? They call the stenographer that they know they can trust, Albert Breer from Monday Morning Quarterback on Sports Illustrated. Anytime you need a stenographer who won't challenge you at all and will basically regurgitate your lies as if he's doing a sit-down with uh, the people who run the cigarette industry to talk about how smoking is actually a really good way to fight lung cancer, you find Albert Breer. That's your guy. I guess what I want to say above all else to everybody out there who's an aspiring journalist is to quote Robert Townsend from the movie Hollywood Shuffle. There's always work at the post office. Do not be Albert Breer. Have a job with some dignity. Trust me, you'll thank me long term. Another Kaepernick watch moment. Just a quick thing about Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis is one of those people I'm really tired of talking about. Ray Lewis came forward. He took the very sexist tack of saying, gee, Kaepernick would be on the Ravens if it wasn't for the fact that his girlfriend sent a nasty tweet. Look, listen, Ray Lewis. If the Ravens would sign someone who was party to a double homicide, a tweet by the girlfriend of a player would not stop them. And for you to put her on blast, that is so sexist. It's a way of saying that girlfriends and wives of players should shut up because this is man's work. Keep that sexism to yourself or hang out with your buddy Jim Brown and be as sexist as you want. But don't bring that to this conversation because, frankly, it doesn't belong here. The real issue at work is right now you're doing what you've always done, which is carrying water for Steve Bishotti and the Baltimore Ravens. And I get it. I get why you're doing it. They put a statue of you in front of the stadium. But that doesn't make it okay to do what you're doing right now. Be better than that, Ray Lewis. Drink a deer antler smoothie and call it a night. And now a quick word from the second best podcast that the Nation Magazine runs, Start Making Sense. If you like Edge of Sports, you've got to check out Start Making Sense from the Nation Magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, enough of the podcast talk. Let's get back to Edge of Sports. Okay, one last note before we go. I got a listener email from Chris Cordova from Denver, and he sent me an email. I just want to share it to you all. He said, Dear Dave, love the show. I'm in Denver, and the Broncos just re-signed Brock Osweiler. Now we have three terrible QBs. We all know the reason why the Broncos won't sign Kaepernick. Elway is a Trump fanboy. The collusion that's going on is why I'm not supporting the NFL. Maybe forever. We need to boycott products that are associated with the league. That's what will hurt them even more. Keep up the fight. I'm hearing this more and more from people because if you're a fan in Denver and you have a defense that is a Super Bowl defense led by Von Miller and your quarterback is Trevor Simeon or Paxton Lynch or, God forbid, Brock Osweiler, and you know that Colin Kaepernick means you're 11-5 and five and you get into the playoffs, and you know that these other guys are dooming you to just waste a year of Von Miller's prime? Yeah, even independent of politics, that might turn me off from the National Football League as well. But hey, 
At least John Elway wrote a letter of recommendation on Denver Broncos stationery for Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch when he went up for his confirmation. That's true. He really did that. But shockingly, nobody said anything to John Elway about separating his politics from his sports. That's all for me for this week, everybody. It's great to be back. If you want to listen to back episodes of the Edge of Sports podcast, including the terrific one we did a couple weeks back about the Stand with Kaepernick rally in New York City where we were live, please, please, please check out edgeofsportspodcast.com or go to iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. And hey, as long as you're there, give us a rating. Write a little note. All of that stuff takes you 30 seconds and it makes a big difference to us. We've got so much news coming up in the future for the show. So many things we want to do to expand the podcast. We need our listeners to be as engaged as possible. For everybody out there listening, big thank you to my producer, David Tigabu, who's flying solo this week. Big thank you to Neil DeMoss. Big thank you to Daniel Baker, who's not here, but I know will be part of post-production. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.